With the news media reporting increasingly more data breaches and cybersecurity events, and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. We're here to help you prevent potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you so much for joining us again. Welcome to the 86th episode of my show. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Player FM, Google Play, Overcast, TuneIn, CastBox, Poppin, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. Also, please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel website, and then you'll be notified just as soon as each new show is available. And thank you to all my listeners throughout the world. I truly do appreciate you. And thank you for listening and sending all your messages. I really appreciate them so much. My April Privacy Professor Tips message was published at the end of March. Please sign up for them. I've provided them for free since 2005, and I've been archiving them since 2007, and I've provided them in an effort to increase general awareness of information security and privacy issues, but also to provide a free awareness publication for organizations to send to their employees. You can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. And we are now also providing free ebooks and awareness videos through my privacysecuritybrainiacs.com site. Get them from there and sign up for notifications about those from privacysecuritybrainiacs.com. Today, I am covering a topic once more all over the news here in the U.S., and that is about, once more, the 2020 elections and kind of the fallout from those elections and actions being taken. And I've had so many listeners ask me for another show about this. So what is it about? Well, there are more claims and questions still going on about whether or not the elections were properly secured. And there are continuing claims about widespread voter fraud, despite the lack of evidence for fraud that has been um, you know, reported through many different news sites and by many different entities. In the year, well, actually a little more than a year leading up to the elections, some candidates even went so far as to claim that if they did not win, that it was an indication that there was widespread fraud. And of course, after hearing this so often, a lot of voters then got to believing that after hearing it for months and months. 
So in the days right before and right after the election day and following the declaration of the federal, state, and local winners of the elections, the claims of voter fraud continued. And what was interesting was on TV and online through social media sites and so on, there were many images and videos posted and a lot of the folks posting them claimed that they were so-called, quote, evidence of voter fraud. But were they actually evidence? Were they even from those images, the 2020 elections? So on November 7th, at the federal level, Joe Biden was declared winner of the election for U.S. president. Now, members of the U.S. Election Infrastructure Government Coordinating Council and the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, along with members of the National Association of Secretaries of State and the National Association of State Election Directors and members of the Election Infrastructure Sector Coordinating Council, all of these folks had been closely tracking documenting and analyzing the voting practices throughout the entire election season. And after the winner of the election was declared, all these folks dedicated all their time in those days following that to performing audits and doing reviews and analysis for all the data involved to identify irregularities, problems, and potential fraud. Now, after they did all of this reviewing and assessing and analyzing, they released a joint statement about their findings on November 12. Now, the lead sentence in that statement was this, quote, the November 3rd election was the most secure in American history, end quote. And they also included the determination based on the facts that they said that they reviewed and reported upon that, quote, there is no evidence that any voting system deleted or lost votes, changed votes, or was any way compromised, end quote. So despite all the dedicated attention to election security by thousands of security and elections and computer systems experts for the time leading up to and then following the election, the claims of fraud persisted and the claims of so-called Fraud evidence continues to persist. In fact, there are states here in the U.S. that just passed more restrictive voting laws and bills are being considered for restricting voting options and times. And I want to give you just two quick examples of this because one of them comes from here in my home state of Iowa. So here in Iowa the Republican Secretary of State, he had set up what was really a great um, way to vote in 2020. It allowed for early voting and allowed for mail-in voting. It had all these satellite voting locations um, all before the actual election day. And, you know, it, it was successful. Iowans broke the all-time turnout record for a general election for our state. Over 76% of registered voters here in Iowa voted. 
And I know some of you in other countries have laws requiring people to vote. So you probably think, well, that's not that high. Well, that's pretty darn high here in the U.S. And in Iowa, again, this vote, um, this 76 percent broke a record. Post-election audits also occurred. And after they occurred, they reported that, yes, they ensured that there was integrity, there was accuracy of the outcomes. The election in Iowa was, was also declared by the Secretary of State to be the most secure in history, along with the highest turnout in history, using early voting and mail-in and absentee voting, along with polling locations on Election Day. So this is a huge success, right? This sounds great. Well, in the past few weeks, the Iowa State congressional lawmakers, and it was along solely party lines, they were all Republicans that had a bill. They passed a bill to restrict those voting times and restrict the voting options that they claimed were needed to have a new law due to, quote, concerns, end quote despite evidence that no fraud occurred and that security was strong. And our Governor Reynolds signed it into law on March 8th. Number two example, even more drastic of voting restrictions occurred in Georgia on March 25th. And this after a very large voter turnout there and after multiple recounts and multiple audits of the 2020 election results occurred and there were no signs of security failures or evidence, no evidence of widespread or even small spread fraud, no evidence of voting machine security failures or tampering. The restrictions imposed by the new Georgia voting law contains even more restrictions than those in Iowa, even to the point of criminalizing people handing out food and water to voters standing in really long lines for hours and hours. There have been at least 253 voting bills proposed in at least 43 states restricting voting methods, restricting voting times, and even criminalizing these types of practices, such as just giving folks standing in line for hours and hours drinks, uh, all due to, quote, concerns about voter fraud, end quote, even though hundreds of audits and ballot recounts and independent voting machine security assessments have resulted in no voter fraud. So you're probably thinking, well, what security measures are actually established for poll centers on voting day? You know, what are the security practices for early voting locations? What are the practices for mail-in and absentee voting ballots? What would election officials tell you about those images and videos claiming to be so-called evidence? I mean, are they really evidence? I would like to know if they were real or if they were interpreted the way that uh, we're being told that they're, they should be interpreted, or are they bogus, or how can you tell? Well, I am so happy to have the perfect person to speak with today to answer these very questions. And she has been on my show before and provided very, very valuable information then about other aspects of voting. And I am confident that we are going to learn much, much more from her today. Today, I'm speaking with Ginia Coulter, Polk County, Florida, Supervisor of Elections and Election Clerk 
overseeing her precinct operations and managing her team during election season. Jinya is an experienced election professional, an election security expert, and was recently named as one of the top 25 women in election security and tech. Now, Jinya has a very popular Twitter account, at Election Babe, and it's attracted the notice of the U.S. Vote Foundation, and Jenya currently serves as their social media program manager. During her time at U.S. Vote, Jenya developed a passion for uh, election cybersecurity and incident response. So you know she's been looking at this for a long time. See more about Jenya Coulter on my Voice America show site. Jenya, thank you so much for being my guest today. Welcome back to my show. Well, thank you so much much for for having me back, Rebecca. Well, you know, as you can tell, this is a topic I am just so curious about, and my um, listeners are too. Now, I know that many of my listeners often go out to LinkedIn to look at the profiles of my guests, even after I give the intro. So I know they'll be looking at your profile, and it has some intriguing responsibilities that I know my listeners will want to know more about, as do I, with regard to how they relate to ensuring the security of voting and the ballots and ensuring the accuracy and integrity of the results. And I I believe this will also help shine a light on how other election officials throughout the U.S. also address security during voting and elections, collecting and counting ballots and also. So um, you have as part of your profile that you manage um, diverse precincts. So I'm wondering, you know, how many precincts are you responsible for? And could you maybe provide an overview of what you do for precincts where securing voting materials and ballots and equipment and so on is involved? Of course. Now, the first thing is I am responsible legally for every single ballot issued to me at any precinct that I'm in charge of. I can't blame this on anybody else if there's a problem. So I have to make sure personally that I'm observing proper security protocols. Ballots are never left unattended. They are always sealed up in boxes, not just with a tagged seal that has to be physically cut, but also with heat tamper seals, which are taped on both sides of each box. And those, when I do, and when I issue those ballots, I make sure only one um, pad of ballots is issued at a time to each person who's going to be handing out ballots to voters. And I log those. So if something, so I always make sure that I have a little notebook with me and I log every single serial number of every single pad of ballots that I've been issued. And I keep maintaining that during the on election day. Now, early voting, it's a little different because we use what are called ballot on demand printers. So the voter gets checked in. And then once they've signed, we print out a custom precinct specific ballot for that voter. So that I don't have to be quite as worried about the, um, I don't have to be quite as worried about the ballots, but I have to make sure that the voted ballots, once we've taken them out of our ballot scanner, get locked up, put in a fireproof bag, put in the safe, and then go in a cage and get locked up. And then they go into the clean room and get locked up. And then the voting room is locked up. And then the facility, which last time was a courthouse, gets locked up properly. So 
that's great to hear. And I think it's worth emphasizing a couple of things that, that you said, just for my listeners' sake. So you account for every single ballot that gets used at your precincts then, right? Yes. And I also keep track of every single unused. We actually have to count the stubs and the ones and the ballots that we didn't issue. And those go on separate parts of our paperwork. So if a lot of these folks who are saying, well, we saw people carrying in stacks of ballots um, and that's what they put into the machine. They, they were bringing in, you know, 10 and 20 ballots and, and voting for people 10, 20 times. What would you say to them if, you know, that are trying to make that claim that people brought in their own ballots to use then? Um, the ballot, one of the things that's interesting is ballot printing. Most people don't necessarily understand how the process works. Um, it is kind of some of the things that they involved in ballot printing are relatively obscure or kept quiet for obvious security and privacy reasons. Mm -hmm. But ballot paper stock is a very specific weight and smoothness. They measure smoothness by something called a Sheffield. So if you ever talk about how, like it, something's like 180 Sheffields, they're talking about how smooth the ballot stock is. And ballot scanners do have a way of telling whether or not the ballot is the proper stock and weight of paper. Mm -hmm. And just about every single commercially printed ballot has a small mark in the margins of the ballot because most people don't, most ballots aren't printed edge to edge. Mm -hmm. There are small marks in the, mar in the margins called timing marks, and those will be places where the um, pixels tar are targeted. And there's also an anti-counterfeit mark in that printing somewhere on the ballot. And if the, if the scanner notes that it's not there, that ballot gets kicked out. Okay, so those are kind of like watermarks then, right? Just to, Yes. Okay, great. And then what you're describing too about the paper it would be similar to people trying to print their own money and pass it off as real when you can tell by the feel and, and kind of the thickness and look of, of actual currency um, that paper has does have a difference that can be noticed, especially like from what you're saying, your machines that they go through. Yes. And some now some machines are a lot more sensitive to it than others. Um, ballot scanners that I'd say are more than 15 years old may not have as sophisticated of an anti-counterfeit detection system, but most modern ballot scanners are actually pretty good at telling which was a real ballot and which ones may, there may be questions. Okay. Now, for, for military and overseas voters, finding ballot stock or if their ballot doesn't get sent to them on time, that can be a heart attack. So mm -hmm. what we would do, in, what they would do in this case would be they would send us their ballot, and the people there's um, team there's teams at the election office, one person from each political party. They will take a ballot from the election office's stock, and they will fill they will transfer the voter selections from the mail ballot for, for an overseas voter. Mm -hmm. They'll transfer them over to a, re, a standard ballot, and then that's the ballot that goes through the scanner. It's called a remake. Mm -hmm. And they're it's, pretty. They're they're very particular about who actually gets to do this procedure in the office. Generally, mm -hmm. it's people who are high above, have had background checks, et cetera. 
but that's how those ballots that are printed from overseas and get returned to us, that's how those go through the counter and that's how their ballot gets counted. I'm glad you brought that up because now, is that what's called ballot curing? Um, ballot that curing, that's actually a great question, Rebecca. Um, ballot curing is a little different. Um, ballot curing, I think, has more to do, it's closer to what they would call a signature cure. Ah, and that's if there's a discrepancy between a voter's signature, what they've got in the records at the election office, versus how they signed their the, the envelope on their mail ballot. Mm. Okay. And so these would be, so let me put a pin there and I'll come back to that because that's an important thing too. But back to the other about the actual types of ballots then. You have, you mentioned you do have people from both major parties that are there as witnesses to what's going on for uh, these ballots that are coming in and making sure that they, you know, can be counted in case something has happened to them, like in the mail and so on. So I know a lot of the videos that were being pointed to as saying, oh, look, people are actually filling out and changing ballots that other people sent in. You know, they're changing them over to different um, candidates. And could some of those videos that they showed, I know there were a lot of like live feeds showing the insides of election centers for transparency, right? But <laughs> when they're focused on people sitting at tables and looking at ballots and then transferring everything over to a a, a better ballot, if you will, and, and you can explain it, could it have been some of those activities and not just people who decided they were going to be nefarious and just change everybody's ballots? Or what was going on there, do you think? Yes. Yeah. Ballot scanners can be really persnickety, especially the newer ones. There's mm -hmm. certain things, like if somebody fills out their ballot in an ink the ballot scanner doesn't like, guess what? That ballot's going to get kicked out. So oh. they'll, take, they have to, they'll have to remake that ballot. Or if there's an issue with a mark being faint or a mark that's because they, one of the reasons they were looking at the ballots with magnifying glasses is they want to make sure if there's a question of intent that they have the correct intent from that voter because the voter is not there to tell them. Mm -hmm. So uh, most of those, so I, I dare say the vast majority of the ballots that were being marked in those videos mm -hmm. were probably just ballots that arrived damaged, torn, water stained with the wrong ink or were late, were late arrivals from overseas. And there was nothing nefarious about that. That's standard procedure in pretty much any election. This is how they make sure the ballots that may have issues get counted accurately. So they are ensuring everyone gets their constitutional right to have their vote counted, even if something that was beyond the voters' control, like you said, maybe it got dropped in a puddle through you know, the mail process or something else. Um, it's ensuring that based upon how you can tell by some folks who are trained to look at these ballots, what they need to do to make a ballot that can be used to count that vote then. Mm -hmm. It's really no more. It's that's. I wish people didn't always ascribe nefarious intent to election offices, because I'd say 99.9% .9 of the election officials in America just want to have a nice, clean, boring election where they don't meet this, make the 6 p.m. news. Right, <laughs> right. Well, and then plus the fact that they're, they're doing their job to make sure everybody's vote counts, but like you said, 
you have people there witnessing what they're doing. I mean, what if, what do those folks who are watching the election workers do if they think, uh-oh, something funny's going on over there? I mean, what is the process when they think somebody's doing something illegal or fraudulent? Um, well, there's one of the things I love is that you can, it's amazing what you can accomplish when you suspend your disbelief. And I would ask, why do you assume people who are willing to put cameras on their workers to uh, work with the ballot invite people over to witness fraud in plain sight? Exactly. That's a good question. And I think um, that's something that, you know, on social media, of course, though, you can go down wormholes or rabbit holes all over the place for uh, people trying to twist reasons out of the air. But um, I I'm glad you're talking about I'm glad we're talking about this because it's like I've seen so many of those and I'm sure you've probably seen many more than I have online where it, it just looked to me like it was election workers doing what they were supposed to be doing. And they've, I'm assuming they have training, right? I mean, the people who come in and are doing this, it's not like you just called them up the night before and said, hey, do you want to come over and, and help with the election? No, most of the people who do that procedure are actual employees, like full-time employees of the election office. They don't usually leave that to amateurs. Right. Well, and you probably do you participate in training them too, since you can or maybe oversee ensuring that they do get that kind of training, which I would classify as including security training for the ballots. Now, what I do is I teach the technology. Um, I teach how to operate and update voter records in electronic poll books, how to troubleshoot if there's issues going on with the ballot scanners. But one of the things I do after the election is I'm also on the post-election audit team. And my job is to track down the precincts that may have had some issues with their paperwork and mm -hmm. figure out what happened. And there's a running joke that um, no ro there, there will never be a rogue ballot as long as I'm around because I will go to the ends of heaven and earth and the limits of my overtime to, to track it down. Which it, we thank you very much for, because I know we all want our votes to count when we take the time to, you know, fill them out and so on. Now, something uh, that you mentioned, and we're going to have a coming to a break here in a minute. So maybe just get started um, with your other comment that you talked about how you actually take the scanned ballots, you put them in a box and uh, you put a certain special tape on there and then you lock them up. Is that correct how I'm describing that? Yes. Okay. So let's come back. I know we're coming up on our break here. So uh, when we come back, I do want to finish getting more details about that particular um, thing because I, a lot of people have introduced, you know, these conspiracy theories about that too. But right now it's time for a quick break to hear from our sponsors. I'm speaking today with Jenya Coulter, Polk County, Florida, Supervisor of Elections and Election Clerk about voting and elections security. I'm your host, Rebecca Harrell, the Privacy Professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show, as well as show topic suggestions using my email, RebeccaHarold at RebeccaHarold.com, and also through my Privacy Security Brainiacs website, Please stay with us. We'll be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, research, report writing, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyguidance.com. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages she has published since 2007. Visit privacyguidance.com for help and answers to your questions. The Privacy Security Brainiacs team wants everyone responsible for security, privacy, and compliance to stay up to date with the latest news, risks, and security and privacy practices. Check out their growing library of topics not offered by others. Privacy Security Brainiacs also wants every business to perform automated risk assessments, which are free or value-priced for all types of security and privacy topics. You need to find out more about Privacy Security Brainiacs. Visit PrivacySecurityBrainiacs.com. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on the Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, and today I'm speaking with Ginya Coulter. She works as an uh, election clerk at the Polk County, Florida Election Supervisor um, Office. So before we went to break, why we were talking about, you know, how you can ensure how how Ginya ensures that those ballots are legitimate um, and, you know, that people aren't actually just willy-nilly changing the boxes on them and, and putting them in instead of the ones that the actual voters filled out. Um, so something you mentioned, Ginya, was about the boxes. So right before break, we talked about how you take all of the ballots you put them in boxes. Now, is that somebody's assigned uh, role or job to take all of those ballots and put them into, you know, the secured box and then lock them up? And they're the ones that has the key for the each a location. Yes, actually, for early voting, that's because we have to trade off because it's um, it goes for two consecutive weeks. Mm-hmm. We have even the evening team has a set of responsibilities. And the next morning, the other team has their set of responsibilities. And we want to make sure that our paperwork on the evening team, if our paperwork is correct, that makes the life of the morning team so much easier. If we leave them a mess, then it's going to make their day harder and they're going to deal with more difficulties. So everybody has to know the roles have to be very clearly defined. And you have to emphasize to everybody, these, the ballots are legal documents. Mm-hmm. We need to make sure that we treat them with the courtesy and security that they very richly deserve because these are people's votes. So they're accountable. Are they yes. legally accountable? Like if they tried to do something with those votes, 
that they aren't supposed to do, there's legal ramifications for that, right? There can be. And whoever was in charge of that team, their head's probably going to be on the chopping block. Okay. So it's not like people can just do things uh, ad hoc. You have specific procedures that have to be followed. How about then when people are talking about, oh, well, these boxes of ballots being brought in uh, from people like absentee ballots and people who are collecting ballots from like folks who can't get out of their homes. We saw a lot of that in 2020. People can't, a lot of people uh, who just for their health reasons, they couldn't get out of their homes. So people would pick them up, bring them in. How do you ensure that those ballots are, are legitimate when you get them at the election center? Well, I definitely understand people's concern. Um, that's of some of the, um, mass collection of vote by mail ballots to bring in is something called ballot harvesting. It's mm-hmm. legal in some states. It's discouraged or against the law in others. Um, in Florida, our rule is it can only be somebody who is immediate family member or somebody who lives at the same address. Mm-hmm. And I understand now. I understand that there is concern over this. However, the more you restrict it, I think the more of the difficulty it becomes for voters. And our main concern is the interest of the voter, not our own interests. Mm-hmm. Now, I do think that people who go around and collect ballots need to be held accountable if anything happens to those ballots. But overall, I think the banning drop boxes or banning collection of ballots, especially for people who might live in a remote area and they can just get all of their neighbor's ballots with them to turn in. I don't really see how restricting this makes elections any more secure. Because when a ballot comes into the election office from mail, first thing they do is verify that the signature is correct and the address and voter record encoded into the barcode on the envelope are correct. If there's a discrepancy anywhere, that ballot goes to the outstack or curing pile where the election office has to let the voter know, hey, we had an issue. Can you come in so we can resolve this? Yes. So there we get back to the curing issue. So like maybe I broke, I'm left-handed. Maybe I broke uh, my left arm and right at voting time. And so I had to sign with my right hand. It's likely the someone who's looking at that would say, well, that signature doesn't match. So then that's when you would probably contact me to say, mm-hmm. what, you know, why does your signature look different? Is that kind of how it works? Yes. And there's been, and there's honest mistakes too. There are husbands and wives who have accidentally, especially if they have the same first initial, they'll mm-hmm. mix, they'll put their ballot in their spouse's envelope by mistake. Ah, we get a few of those every year. So that's, you know, it's like, it's not that it's a problem. It's just, we have to be able to account for each ballot and we don't want somebody to tell somebody at the polling place, Hey, you voted already when it turned out that their spouse just put their ballot in this person's envelope. And then their spouse is like, what's going on? I didn't vote. You know, people, it's really easy for people to panic and think, Oh God, you know, somebody's committing fraud using my voter record. And it's like, um, usually that is not the case. It's and an honest mistake. Yeah, and that's another that's another type of cure of that ballot, right? Your, your yes, the sign- uh, signature cure. Okay. Well, I know here in Iowa, I mean, I typically vote by mail, and I know there's a very strict um, procedure I have to follow with different envelopes and everything else. What I like 
is I can see the audit trail for where my ballot is at from the moment in time I request it to when they've received it online at the uh, Secretary of State's website. Is that very widely, you know, that type of practice to be able to tell? I like that because that tells me I know for sure that my my ballot got there. Um, well, the, sec- the Secretary of State of Iowa does follow me on Twitter, so I will definitely pass along your compliment to him. I think he'll, re- <laughs> I think he'd be quite flattered. Um, many states use what's called ballot tracking software, and what it does is it tracks your request when your ballot's mailed to you, when the ballot's received by the election office, whether or not the signature was accepted, and whether or not it was tabulated. And I think that's a really neat feature. I cannot wait to see more states and jurisdictions instituting this. We have this in Polk County, and I'm actually a big fan of ours because on ele- I'm working election day. I have to vote by mail as well. Ah, yeah. Now, now, isn't that interesting? I bet a lot of people listening would be surprised to hear that. I'm surprised to hear that. You're, you're there all the time, but yet you vote by mail because you're so busy. You, you can't be distracted by doing your own vote. So that's pretty cool. Um, oh, just a, go ahead. We did a two-page ballot last year, so I would not have had time to vote in person. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's a very good point. You were dedicated to focusing on your work and not going off and uh, doing elsewhere. And it's funny because um, I live in Des Moines. We're a Polk County here too, so it's interesting. We both live in Polk County, just in different states. Um, so another thing involved with uh, security, where the election, you know, where people go on election day, people are like, well, the people who are working at the actual election center, you know, that they're concerned that, oh, maybe they're, they're changing everybody's ballot. The people where you come in and where, like here again in Des Moines, where I vote is at a church that's a couple of blocks away the people there handing me my ballot, they aren't the ones that are actually then taking the ballot, are they? I mean, their job kind of ends with making sure that people are registered and having a sign in and, and take our ballot and then go vote. Yes, there's separation of duties. Now, I'm ultimately responsible for everything my team does. But if you go into an election, a voting center or polling place in Florida, we have our book inspectors who check in voters at the poll book make sure that they've signed and then they issue their ballot. And then once the voter gets the ballot, unless there's an issue like a mistake or there was an incorrect process, the next person they're gonna run into is the person who is in charge of our ballot scanner. So you have to make sure that there is some separation of duties. Yes. Now the only problem is the person who's in charge of the ballot scanner cannot leave their post. So if they have to go use the uh, little ballot fairies room they have to let me know, hey, uh, Jenny, can you please come relieve me? And then I will go over there and I'll man the ballot box while they, you know, go do their business. Ah, okay. Well, that's good to know, too, because some of those um, conspiracies were that, you know, where the scanners were at were in places that it made them susceptible to tampering. So it sounds like where you are responsible, that that would be hard to accomplish if you or someone else is there with your eye on the scanner at all times. Is that pretty standard practice for other locations as well throughout the U.S.? It is. Now, the one thing that since you're the privacy professor, we, this is something you'll appreciate. 
we have to make sure where we're standing, we're not staring at the voters' ballot because we don't, I mean, that's not our business, how they voted. We want to make sure we maintain their privacy, but we also have to make sure that nobody's going to try and tamper with the scanner and that's the security end. Yes. Well, that's good. I do appreciate that very much. In fact, it's interesting here where I vote, they give us a folder to put our ballot in as we take it up to the scanner. So I always just pull out the very end of it and I kind of let it feed into the uh, scanner and pull it out of the folder so nobody can see it even if they try it, I don't think. But I, probably a lot of people aren't like that. So I'm glad that you, uh, you, know, you have those practices. Now, I want to hit on some of these conspiracy theories. So here is one that I thought was rather ridiculous, but yet a lot of people absolutely believed it. Um, people who are watching vote counts on TV uh, or maybe online, but they're like watching them and they're seeing the vote counts on the little you know line chart. And suddenly they'll see one candidate just all of a sudden goes way up in number of votes they got. Maybe they were behind. And this happened um, in, let's see, Brown and Kenosha counties in Wisconsin. They were showing an image of vote counts. And all of a sudden, there was a huge increase in the Biden votes to the Trump votes. And all of a sudden, the, the Biden votes went way up and exceeded the other one. So the folks were saying, that is proof of fraud. How can anybody get that many votes just boom all at once? So how can people get that many votes all at once, Jinya? The different jurisdictions are all like snowflakes. No two are alike. Mm -hmm. Now, Wisconsin has one of the most interesting jurisdictional setups I've ever seen. They do everything by municipality. They don't even go by county. So, oh. so they have a town clerk who's basically in charge of the election. So with, and they think they have like 1800 jurisdictions just in Wisconsin. Wow. So with that, with Wisconsin, they have two things that a lot of, there are a couple of things they do differently that not every state has. They have same day registration, meaning you can register to vote and cast a ballot that day. Mm -hmm. Florida, it's very different. You have to be registered 29 days before the election. So for same-day registrants, that could have been a contributor. And also, this was, um, Wisconsin really put a lot of effort into their vote by mail this year mm -hmm. or last year. And with vote by mail in Florida, we had our ballots ready to go for tabulation at 7 p.m. on election night. Wisconsin wow. does not have that policy that at least not that I, that I know of. And God knows I know enough Scani election officials who I all love. So mm -hmm. they had different batches of ballots coming in at different times. More Democrats were likely to have cast a ballot by mail than have voted in person. Mm -hmm. So if, they, if, they're, if they're trying to make sure that if they're handling vote by mail at a municipal level, it's a lot of work and they don't have nearly as big of a staff as, say, a county would. So they have to do their, um, ballot, their ballot review and scanning in you know, different batches. And some batches were obviously going to come back much higher because they had a higher percentage of Democrats voting by mail in that town versus Republicans who generally prefer to vote in person that election day. Yes. So just because a graph looks unusual is not proof of fraud. Mm -hmm. I also think those graphs should be banned. I mean, m most of my friends are 
not necessarily in elections, they're pollsters and pundits. Mm-hmm. And they are just overly fixated on the vote count. And I'm like, look, unless you're in a state that does vote by mail and they have a really tight deadline for when you have to have that ballot back, you're mm-hmm. not going to know your results for quite some time. So just sit back and deal. You know, it's like there is no law saying that we have to have those election results on TV that night finish because we have to wait for late arriving military ballots. You have to make yeah. sure that if there's any provisional ballots that they've been reviewed, adjudicated and tabulated if they were eligible. It's I mean, there's so much to do on the back end. People would have probably faint if they thought they realized it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I have several more, but I want to ask you because I want to I want to get this question in before we do run out of time. What is the the one conspiracy or fraudulent claim, or maybe it's, you know, a claim that's made and, you know, you can understand why people are making it about an image they saw on TV or somewhere else or some other claim about votes magically appearing. What is the one claim that you would like to kind of debunk, if you will? I'm so glad you asked. Um, (laughs) The one where they were saying that these votes, these votes for Biden could not mathematically exist because they used a figure that any that anybody who ever registers or works with voters in any capacity would look at and go, I call BS. They were saying that there was only, there's only 133 million registered voters in the United States of America. And let's break that down. Mm-hmm. There are three around 330 million people living in America right now. Mm-hmm. You're going to tell me that only 133 million people are registered to vote. Even if you had, now a a bad turn, a poor turnout election for me would be about 60%. Uh 60% of 330 million would be about 198 million. So whoever said that there's only 133 million registered voters who did not take same day registration into account and who doesn't take that, the didn't actually look at the individual turnout numbers of each state, I'm sorry, but they really need to go back to math class. Yes. (laughs) Well, where did they even get that number? I mean, did they go back and find it like in an election from the 1930s or something? Or it's just weird that they they picked that specific number and tried to use that claim. Yeah, I think I mean, there's probably about there's over 200. There's well over 200 million registered voters. And the Mm -hmm. best place to actually get that information is going to the Election Assistance Commission or the EAC. Um, mm-hmm. They have a website called EAC.gov, and they do the election administration and voting survey every two years. And if you want election data, really good election data straight from election offices, the EAVS is really your go-to document. Um, you'll learn more there than you'll learn in watching 200 hours of, of, night, of late night election returns. Wow. I didn't know that. I I wrote that down here. I'm definitely going to get that because I love that type of data. So that's a good, that's a very good uh, pointer. Um, Yeah. Well, you know, one of my degrees is in math and I used to teach. I started out uh, between my bachelor's and master's teaching seventh through 12th grade math and computing. So I'm not surprised that people don't just go ahead and do the math themselves, <laughs> but it's disappointing that they believe what's what's stated out there without verifying the facts. And talking about 
you know, not verifying. Another thing that kind of bugged me, and I don't know, I wonder if it'll bug you. There's this um, image of the United States. And, of course, news stations love to use these types of images. But it shows where Republican votes are in red and the, the Democrat votes are in blue. And when they show it, of course, um, it looks like there's only tiny, just a few places of blue, and then there's wide swaths of red. And I'm looking at one of the images now. It said, well, you know, look at this and try to explain if this, the United States is mostly red, why didn't, you know, that's proof that there was voter fraud. I mean, how would you respond to someone who's trying to say because of a image of the United States showing Republican and Democratic um, voters um, or Democrat voters, why that doesn't necessarily translate to, you know, having the, the votes being fraudulent? Well, I am blessed to know some of the best amateur and professional political map makers in the entire world. They all follow me on Twitter. I love you guys. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that they would the first thing that they would tell they would tell someone is how many high density population republican cities are there mm-hmm. the vast majority of urban metropolises skew blue so although it doesn't take up a ton of land mass there are a lot of people packed into those areas and once you go towards the middle of the country or towards some areas in the south they're rel- yes they're red but they're very sparsely populated and remember land can't vote so you're going to have a lot more. So the areas in blue almost always have more have more voters, period. Mm-hmm. And the areas in red will generally not be as dense. You know, I mean, I live in a county that's semi-rural, and it's one of the biggest counties in Florida. But you'd never re- and they, they say that there's allegedly a million people here, and I'm just like, where? Where are they hiding? You know, a sixth of my county doesn't even have broadband internet yet. There's no yeah. infrastructure. So, so there's some these huge counties that, yes, they may be red counties, but there's not a lot of folks living in them. Mm-hmm. So I think that might be, I think that would probably be the best explanation. It's just, yes, those patches of blue are small, maybe in geography, but as far as population, they're a lot bigger. Yeah. Square miles in land area does not equal number of votes. <laughs> yes, no, it does not. That's a good now, observation. Yeah. Now another one. Um, There was another image that was all over the place. It said Virginia was caught switching 100,000 votes from Trump to Biden in Fairfax County. And they claimed that it was a counting error. But they, you know, it's like, that is impossible that people that, you know, the elections officials would have a counting error that big. I don't know if you saw that or not, but are ballots ever accidentally given to another candidate? There's, well, there's any number of things that could have happened. Now, I do know quite a few of the people who work in the, work in Fairfax County, Virginia, and they're really amazing people. Mm -hmm. Now, not every jurisdiction counts using a scanner. Some jurisdictions, they'll do hand count. And with hand counting, people can get tired and Mm -hmm. sometimes they can transpose a number or put a number in the wrong column. I'm willing to bet that that's one of the more likely scenarios. Or sometimes, well, the, one of the other things that can happen, especially in places that don't do precinct-specific ballots, 
I mean, my county does, but not everyone does, is um, sometimes a box of ballots could have accidentally been scanned more than once, which ah. is really, embar- it's embarrassing, but it's happened. And then you just have to, then you just have to go back, tally all your ballots again and go, oh, wait, where'd these come from? 20 bucks says it was an accidental rescan. So your procedures catch those types of accidents or errors, human errors. Yes, I mean, I mean if, if we because we have a general idea of what we're looking for, and if there's something that's just way out in left field, 99% of the time, it was an honest mistake. Our procedures caught it. We can just start over and, you know, everything every and everything works out. It's, you know, it's most election officials really just want to do their job right the first time, and any time that there's an, uh, there's a mistake, it's embarrassing and but they'll admit it and they're not trying to blame other people. Right. We're only human. I mean, come on, folks out there listening. Give these election officials are probably working many, many hours in a row. People, you know, give them a break. They can't, the, the point is they catch those errors. So that's a good thing. I guess um, we're getting to the end of the show already. But, you know, in one or two minutes, what is the key point or lesson that you want our listeners to take away from our discussion today? If you have a question about election procedures, ask somebody who's actually in elections in some capacity, and they will be able to give you a much better explanation and the background for that explanation. You know, you can't just rely on what talking heads on TV say, because for the most part, they make money from outrage. From outrage. As somebody who doesn't stand to make any money from a problem. That is a very good, very good takeaway. Thank you so much for being my, on my show again today, Jenny. I learned a lot. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. I'm, re- I'm so flattered that you asked me back. I'm ha- I had a great time. What? Well, I did too. And I'll have to have you back again because, you know, this is going to be coming back again, <laughs> this topic, uh, in another two, well, less than two years even. So, um I've been speaking today with Jenya Coulter. She is an election clerk for the Polk County, Florida supervisor. And we've been talking about the voting and election security practices and debunking some of the conspiracy theories that are running rampant out there. Um, Please send feedback about this show. I know several of you asked me to cover this topic. So did you learn about some of the things that you were concerned with and that you asked me to talk about today? Would you like to hear more about this topic? Well, just let me know. You can contact me using Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. If you cannot make our scheduled debut show on the first Saturday of each month, you will be able to listen to the recordings and you can find recordings of all my past shows on your favorite app or of course, Thank you for tuning in this week. Data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live the first Saturday of each month at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next time, stay safe.